Branko Melodic and thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. You can catch up with news, projects, interviews and much more at architectureanddesign.com.au where you can also subscribe to our newsletters and magazine. Okay, welcome to Talking Architecture and Design. My name is Branko Melodic and today we have with us in our, dare I say, virtual studio, Dr. Shane Gahar, who is the Managing Director and Co-Founder of EG Advisory, a rezoning company with expertise in land transformation that operates across Australia. Dr. Gahar has a PhD in town planning and is one of the leading rezoning experts in New South Wales. His focus is working closely with clients on property uplift strategy and implementation and has worked on multiple rezoning projects, including some of the largest land use changes in both size and value in New South Wales and across and across Sydney. Um, Dr. Gahar also lectures at the University of Sydney and the University in, of New South Wales uh, in several engineering courses and has the only PhD that connects zoning and land values that is peer reviewed. So welcome to Talking Architecture and Design, Dr. Shane Gahar. Thank you, Branka. Nice to be here. Okay, um, I've been reading about you can I call you Shane? Is that, is that okay? Yes, please. Okay. I've been reading about you, Shane. So, and I, I'm going to quote you back. Okay. So, and and you're going to, and I'm not going to, I'm not going to try and pronounce the uh, the, the French, but I'll I'll, I'll, I'll translate it. So, but anyway, you wrote the, when it comes to basically our housing shortage, and, and that's what I want to concentrate on because that is that is particularly in Sydney and Melbourne, particularly in Sydney, <laughs> that yeah. is our that is that is probably <laughs> one of the most talked about things, not just in this industry, but in most industries. So when it comes to the housing shortage, you've written, the reality is we are not trying hard enough to make a real go at solving this issue. We call it window dressing, but the French have a far more elegant idiom, or the habit does not make the monk. Interesting. In my... In my you, you can't get a monk and just put a habit on... You can't get anyone put a habit on them and call them a monk. That's a point. So, so the substance of the person or, or the issue matters more than how you dress. Fair enough. So mm. you've also said, in in my view, the answer to Sydney's housing affordability problem is a complex one. It is not just one thing that will eventually give rise to a solution if it were associated with it, it be done already. Okay. So if there's a list of five or ten things that we need to do to solve the housing um, affordability issue in Sydney and obviously yeah. for mainland Sydney. Yeah. What would you do, Shane? Well, th there'd be a lot of things that you'd need to think about, and and I, I suppose democracy is the world's best system, but it's riddled with faults. And one of its faults is that it's slow. It's very, very slow. Someone once said in a nice literature uh, review of democracy that it works like syrup. Uh, it's it's very slow moving. It eventually sticks on everything, but it takes forever to get on. So, and and that's the problem is that from the time you can see the solution to the time you actually deliver in the planning system is a very very long time. So the first problem is that we have wanted to have a regulated system because we feel that regulation is important to create order. Now that as a concept is ideal. It's brilliant, but the problem with it practically, as we've seen in the last. 20 or 30 years in Sydney, in particular, as an example, is that it delivers everything too slowly. So from the time you identify a need 
to the time you can deliver that need is a very long time. I'll give you an example. If you and I, Blanco, walked down Sydney City, we found a really fantastic site for a five-star hotel. The Hilton Group rang us. By the way, this is not a paid advertisement, uh, so, <laughs> so I'm just using that as a generic brand name. And they, they rang us and they said, look, we're ready to occupy the hotel. We'll give you a guarantee for 500 rooms. It underpins the deal. You can develop the hotel site. Sounds fantastic. We have a deal. The bank will give us money, right? That land is zoned for hotel, right? And it will take us, it will take us two years to finish our architecture and to lodge the DA with Sydney City Council. Then it will take us another year, at least, if not two, to get the, uh, the, the, the certificate that you need for construction called the construction certificate. So there's another year at least. That's one year, two years, three years, close to four years. Then we have to build the damn thing, right? Then it takes us two years to build it. At best, it's a six-year plan. From the time we've identified demand, to the time we have created supply. That in economics is called a highly inelastic supply demand equation. Okay. Now, if, if, if I'll give you the converse, if Arnott's decided that Tim Tams were suddenly in great demand, they can produce packets of Tim Tams on the shelves within a week at Woolworths. Again, this is not a paid advertisement. At the, at, at, at a, at the supermarket, they can produce uh, those team terms within a week. That is a very elastic supply-demand equation, right? We don't have that in property. We don't have that on any level of property. Now, you add to that the rules. Now, Alexander the Great in 323 BC uh, passed away from uh, illness, from smallpox, allegedly, or some say the plague, and he died with a great saying. He said, they said to him, how are you feeling, Alexander? And he said... I'm dying. I'm dying with the help of too many physicians. <laughs> so, so, and it's sort of the same in our planning system, I feel. I mean, every time we want to fix it to go faster and get better, we go slower and get worse. Okay. So we've created the Greater Sydney Commission to make things better and clearer and have great idea. As soon as we've implemented it, we now have another layer of bureaucrats with more plans that are more useless than the previous plans, right, that now slows down the process even more. There's now less reason for local government to get things done quickly, and everything's now slower. I mean, in my 22 years in planning and zoning, I've been 32 years in property. I was 10 to 12 years before that in development and construction. And in my 22 years in zoning alone, I would say approval times for both DAs and rezonings, just in my experience, have probably been retarded to a level which is the slowest I've ever seen. So the government wants to go faster, except we go slower. The government wants to do better, except we do worse. And what do I mean by that? I mean, you go and open up any LEP, any local environmental plan, they're the rules that councils use to judge development. And there's page upon page of how much they care about affordability, right? We care about affordable housing and about affording people a good dwelling and people are being priced out of the market and blah, 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 and platitude, platitude, right? Except when you come to lodge something and say, can this go faster so we can make things more affordable? No, 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 it can't. Sometimes you're even having projects that add affordable housing stock 
as an adjunct to your project and they will not approve it. So reality is the difference between a thought, what did St. Paul say in the first century? St. Paul has, if St. Paul didn't make the world as a Christian theologian, he would have made the world as a philosopher. Uh, a lot of his sayings are extremely philosophical. One of the sayings that I love about him that he said, he said, the road to hell is paved with good intentions, right? So it's not enough to have good intentions, Branko, because good intentions are just pavings on the road to hell. There's so many of them. There's so many pavings on the road to hell that are just good intentions. I was going to donate to the poor, but I stopped at the casino and threw the money away. I was going to be a good boy, but I went home and drank myself silly. Good intentions are not enough. And say it to in planning. Now, one of the components that make up a house, okay? Let's just take a house as an example. A house, an average house today in a middle ring suburb in Sydney is $1.3 million, okay? I mean, we don't need to kid ourselves that that's seriously unaffordable. Yeah, You might say, well, there's a lot of money around. Yes, there is. But as a person that needs a house that's starting out, you probably need 10 years to even save 5% of that deposit because that's after tax. You've got to work. You've got to live. You've got to recreate. You've got to feed somebody, yourself or others, right? And then save 130000 probably these days more, maybe close to 260000 They probably want 20% from you. So, so it's very difficult to save that within 10 years. That creates the first tier of affordability problem. Now, let's look at that house. If that house is, let's say, 1.2 million, so I can do it in thirds, um, a third of the, that cost is roughly, uh, a, third of that, a third of that cost is roughly the land. Depends, I, I'm, I'm generalizing. Uh, that's not in a middle ring suburb. Uh, a third of that cost, a third of that cost is the construction. And a third of that cost, would you believe, is fees and charges. Fees and charges. So on an $800,000 unit, $240,000 of that is fees and charges. That's remarkable. I mean, that is the government putting their hand in our pockets as developers or builders or, or homeowners for the common good. I mean, they're spending that money on us, allegedly. I understand. The problem is, in the process of helping us with that money, they're making it unaffordable as well. Now, I understand that they need it, but let's look at the tiers. You've got three tiers of charges. You've got GST. So on a, a $1.2 million house, let's use the apartment to simpler. $800,000, bucks, 80000 GST. That's gone straight to the feds. No one's touching that money, right? That's for a brand new dwelling. Then you've got stamp duty at 5.5% of the land value. It's a big number. That's payable upfront. Remember, for both of these, you get no service back. Even when you pay 2000 bucks to the council, right, who are incompetent beyond description, right, uh, they still collect the garbage, right, and, and mow, the, and mow the, the strip lawns a bit. You know, it's not, not a huge service, but, but they do something for the, for, for the rates. Um, for the Section 94 contribution, which I'm about to talk to about, and for the GST, and for the stamp duty, you get no service for the Fed. It's an entire wasted amount of money. Now, people say, well, the hell with the developer or the hell with the guy that's doing this, they're making too much money, all right? 
wrong. You know, all that happens, it just goes on the cost base. I mean, if the government came and charged you as a person uh, for making a computer an extra 20% tax, all you do is just put it onto the cost base because all your competitors have to pay it as well. So you're not priced out of that market. So, so fees and charges is an area that should be looked at in the affordability space immediately and discounted for certain groups if you want them to enter the market. If you want first home builders, why don't we get rid of all of those charges for a first home buyer and give them a real chance in life to buy that unit at 550,000 instead of 800,000. Now that's quite affordable by comparison. And you don't have to take uh, a developer's word for it. The developers can build it and the builders can build it. But you say, right, if you're 25 and you, you go to this agency of government, you qualify, we, we make sure you do, you purchase. Now, if you sell it within 10 years, then it no longer qualifies. If you sell it, but you could make any number of rules around that ranker that could work very well if you really want first home buyers to enter the market. But we're not serious about it. It's all window dressing. Now, the, the New South Wales government has given considerable stamp duty relief for stuff under 800,000. Uh, so you're exempt, you're exempt from stamp duty for anything purchased at, at the moment. But that won't last forever, nor can they afford it forever, especially the way COVID's going. And whilst it's a good initiative, if you look at the local charges of, of council, so now there's something, something that you would recognise called the Section 94 contribution, which is the local open space contribution to the council. Right? That's the old name for it. It's now called Section uh, 4.55, I think. Yeah. So at any rate, that, that, is, that used to be 500 bucks an apartment when I was in my early 20s. And 30 years on, that number is up to $22,000 a unit Wow. Right. That's payable up front on the release of the DA from the council. Now, if you're buying a lot out in the sticks in Brinjelli or, or, or beyond, if you're buying lots in, in Camden, the, for a brand new lot produced today, that Section 94 charge, that local government contribution charge, which they need to build the roads, by the way, essentially, is about forty to 60000 per lot. So, you know, I just recently did a rezoning and, and, and a subdivision out in Schofield. Now, Schofield is 70 k's from the city. You know, you, we're not talking about Randwick. We're talking about Schofield. You're, with all the charges, all the fees, with all the costs, with the subdivision, with the DA charges, with lodgement fees, with GST, with blah, 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 you cannot sell those lots under $500,000 out there for a 450 square meter lot. Now, you put a house on it for 400,000 or 300, I mean, 300,000 buys you a pretty ordinary brick veneer house, right? That's because also the BCA requirements are quite onerous and getting worse with the building commissioner. I'm not sure if they'll improve quality. Hopefully he will improve quality, but essentially, essentially, um, it will just add to another layer to cost and compliance. No one's saying charlatans uh, are acceptable in the market, not at all. I'm just simply talking about cost. So at the end of the day, you cannot build a decent house for under 350,000, even if it's brick veneer and simple. And that's without landscaping, without driveways, and without any fittings of any decent price range. That's simple. Add 300,000 to 500,000, you're at 800,000 bucks. Yep. That's if you haven't paid any stamp duty, right? 
You add that on, that's 850 normally. 850, I mean, so where do the poor people live? interesting what you're telling me um I, I keep getting told well we all keep getting told that you know we should release more land we should you know it's a supply and demand issue with the, with the land we, and which I, I find kind of funny in a country the size of australia but anyway regardless what, what i'm hearing from you is even if we released all the land in australia today right yes. all we'd end up doing is we'd end up just contributing more to government coffers rather than lowering the cost of a house. In one sense, yes. Uh, because it is, it is of course, a little bit of supply-based. I mean, meaning everything is supply and demand. But the demand in Sydney, I believe, will be insatiable. I mean, Sydney, if you look at all the surveys, Branko, of ranking cities in the world for livability and quality of life and all of that, Sydney usually ranks in the top three in the world. Yep. Now, when it doesn't come one or two, if you look at the sub-factors involved in that survey, and it's, they're good surveys, they're like 20,000 people surveyed, right? They're not little surveys. They, you will find that affordability is the only criteria where Sydney got beaten by Oslo or Vancouver or somewhere else, right? And, but, but it's always in the top five. Now, if you look at this year's surveys, Adelaide, Brisbane, Melbourne, Sydney, four cities made it into the top 10. Four cities. That's how good our cities are. They're magnificent cities. So you can assume probably quite safely that the popularity of Australian cities going forward will continue to be very, very high and that people will pay a premium to come here. Now, that premium, unfortunately, for Sydney is getting to look and feel like London. Yeah. Uh, I don't know the last time you were there, but it's, it's an expensive, expensive exercise to live in Sydney. And Branko, we keep saying, well, I'm really happy because I own a house in Sydney and my house has gone up in value. Yes, that's true. But actually, the more responsible thing to say is where do my children live? Are they going to have to live on the other side of the Blue Mountains or in Dubbo? Or even Dubbo is getting quite unaffordable. Okay, that's interesting. You, you, which brings me to my next question, which, which again, uh, it's something that you wrote, which is really interesting. Um, with everything that you've said is that, and then this also ties into something I recently read in, um, I think it was in the Atlantic, I can't remember, but they spoke about the Brazilianization of, of, of Western society, okay? Right. Um, basically saying that we're going to become a society of have and have nots. The haves are going to live in gated communities with armed guards, uh, and the rest of us are going to be outside trying to make it as, as best as we can, some better, some worse, mm -hmm. okay? Um, and I'm not saying they're all going to be living in some dystopian, dystopian, you know, movie. But, but you know, you know, there'll be people who'll be well off, but there'll be a lot of people who won't be that great off. But it'll still, you know, it, it won't be the it won't be the life as we know it. So you've written that, that the way things are at the moment, it's it's not really great for hetero heterogeneity. Heterogeneity, yes. Thank you. I can never say yeah. that. Yeah, heterogeneity, which is which is a mixed use city. Yeah. And, and I'll tell you what I mean by that. I mean, there are so many factors to this that are always accurate. If you're building a city brand new from scratch, and I have a lot of expertise in city making, it, you, you have to build a city where different types of people can afford to live next to each other. Right. I'll tell you why. 
because you'll end up otherwise with the Johannesburg model, where the rich live in a gilded cage in the middle, and the more and more you push outside that gilded cage, the more dangerous it becomes for you to go there. So the city becomes totally dysfunctional. I mean, you get out of that gilded ring in Johannesburg and you'll get carjacked within five minutes. Can you imagine if you left your inner 15 Ks if you're of where you live right now, that you'd get mugged at the traffic lights just because you've left the gilded cage setup? It, it is a completely dysfunctional city model, which we should not ever allow to happen. I'll give you even a, a better reason. Uh, you might live in Vaucluse. Uh, let's say you do, and you live in a beautiful home with harbour views, blah, blah, blah. Who mows your lawn? Someone that has to come from Campbelltown yeah. or beyond. Even Campbelltown now has million-dollar houses, yes. right? So so who, who, who serves the food at your parties? Uh, they're waitresses that have to live somewhere else. They can't live in Vaucluse. Who mows your lawn? Who, who looks after your fish tank? Who delivers your chlorine for your swimming pool? We don't live alone in society, Branko. We live as a community. And remember, just because someone is not socioeconomically endowed at the moment, it doesn't mean that in the future they won't be. In fact, half of Vaucluse used to live in abject poverty a generation ago. Wow. And that's the beautiful thing about an aspirational society like Sydney and Australia, right? Is that anyone can one day make it to Vaucluse. Anyone. Again, this is not a paid advertisement. So, right. So, so reality is that a lot of people start at the bottom, and they make way. They may make their way to the top, as Napoleon once said: "Aspiration rules the world." Yep. Aspiration. Aspiration is the single most important thing in the lives of an individual. Why? Because they aspire to do more. More education, more intelligence, more wealth, bigger house, nicer this, uh, better schools for their children, uh, better health, better. We all aspire to something. And the minute aspiration goes out of society, you'll have a retrogressive society that's actually digging itself back into a hole. So aspiration is something we need to maintain. Now, if that's true, then the people that are cleaning your house or your building in the city, by the way, uh, and by the way, they're all new migrants. So that's why migration is essential to this equation, right? They're all new migrants. They work three jobs, right? They're usually from, at the moment, they, they change with waves, but at the moment they're from Burma and Nepal and Bangladesh, right? They're the, they're the people cleaning our buildings, right? There's not one established Australian uh, person amongst all of those people. Why? Because the job is quite menial and it pays minimum wages, but someone has to clean our building so we can function as a society, so we can produce more GDP and income, right? And those peoples, you look at their children, they all go to selective schools, right? Albeit non-private, but selective. Their children will be doctors and lawyers and one day they'll live in Vaucluse. That's how it works. And that's the story of lots of migrants, like your family and mine and others. Right? And it's an aspiration not just for migrants, but migrants starkly exhibit these features because they come from very poor backgrounds usually, and that's why they've come here, to improve their lives. They have the aspiration to improve. So a heterogeneous city model, a city that encompasses all sorts of land uses, creates the opportunity for a one-bedroom cheap 
thing for the person that's cleaning the, the palace up the road as it does for the palace up the road. The mechanic that repairs your car in, in a very expensive suburb cannot afford to live in that suburb. The, the, the baker that bakes your bread, the policeman that mans the station that you rely on for safety, the nurse that treats you at the local hospital, at the base hospital, um, cannot live anywhere near where you live in that nice suburb. So all these are our citizens. They're all great people with aspiration. And the city model as we know it now does not easily allow for heterogeneously incorporating all these people into our equation. Yet we need them all. That's interesting that, you know, in, in, in my magazine and other magazines like it, they, they, they talk forever about the 30-minute city, you know, and we're going to have these three 30-minute cities in, in, in Sydney anyway, around Sydney. Is there, any, is there any part of Australia where you think they're doing, I guess, town planning or town design or whatnot, however you want to call it, urban design well? Or, or do you think that, there needs to be a lot, a lot of changes. Well, it's all being done well on one level, meaning the ideas are right. I, I think one, one nice thing about our system is it's essentially non-corrupt. So, so you, you don't actually have to be like in the third world where you hand somebody some money to get your approval, right? Now, there's a little bit of that, but it's very peripheral and people should not get the impression that our system has anything but good integrity. It's a system with good integrity, right? That's good. That, that means that we all can get processed in that system reasonably. However, in the process of creating order, we've made up so many rules, 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 right? That by the time you've gone through them, you're exhausted and you spent a lot of money and often it's not even the result you want. And now the bureaucrats run the show and, and a lot of it is box ticking. A lot of it is myopic. A lot of it, I mean, I'll give you an example. One of my very, very good friends uh, owns a house in Newtown, a very nice inner city suburb, which he inherited from his father, a beautiful location. He had the idea that he would extend his kitchen area using a simple pergola-like timber structure, which would then allow his car that's on the street to be taken off the street and to be parked in a carport setup underneath that extension. Right. Simple, simple stuff. Like you've got to say one of the simplest kind of constructions you could think of. He was for three years at the council. He spent 10 grand. He was pulling his hair out. We were sitting having dinner one day. He's a very good friend of mine from school. So I've known him for the best part of 40 years. And he said, this is my problem, blah, blah, blah. I said, Andrew, what are you talking about? And he said, oh, shame this, shame that. And I said, you know what? EG Property is going to fix this for you. So the power and might of EG Property had to get involved for a pergola in Newtown. This is the problem. Now, if I didn't care enough about him, I can't afford to do this. But it took us six months of massive, massive intervention by me personally, right, to get... I mean, imagine at the end of that whole process, I needed a traffic report. So I, I rang the council officer up and I said, surely you jest. Now, I've got three degrees from university and I fail to understand that if a car that was parked on the street that is now off the street 
can cause an effect on the traffic in Newtown. I mean, it, it honestly defies logic. Yeah. He said, you're being very difficult. I said, okay. <laughs> um, anyway, I tried to reason with him. And sometimes there are people with whom no amount of reasoning would work. So it, it, it cannot, you cannot reason. And so at the end, I just rang around Pindar from Traffics, who's responsible for a huge traffic company, did a lot of my reports. I said, Graham, you've got to do me a favour. Uh, this poor fellow, he doesn't have a lot of money. You know, do this for free. You know, you go and... He said, Shane, of course it doesn't. I said, I need a report that says you've examined the standards and it doesn't add to the traffic deleteriously in Newtown. Anyway, we finally had that report. I had to tick every box. In that process, I had the officer call me and say he didn't like the design. I said, sorry, what design are we talking about? It's a pergola that basically extends a kitchen area designed, by the way, I got him involved, one of the best architects in Australia called Angela Candelepas. I said, who's won like 180 awards, including two Sulman. I said, I said, so Angelo's designed this. Am I going to trust your judgment or Angelo's judgment? He said, well, I don't really like it. I said, sorry, what are your qualifications in architecture? He said, I don't have any. I said, good, so you'll approve it. And if I didn't have the experience that I had and the clout that I have, you could not in six months approve a pergola for Andrew in Newtown. Yeah, that, 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 that is symptomatic of a much broader problem. Yep, I was about to say that. That, that sounds like a, a problem I've heard from a lot of people. I've experienced myself many years ago in building um, and other people who find it, yeah, very frustrating. So you've written a lot also about uh, Dallas-Fort Worth, haven't you? And the, the, yes, the... I've been there and I've done a full tour of Dallas-Fort Worth and, and I've been also to Incheon, uh, which is which is the award-winning airport in Seoul. South Korea. So let's, let's first talk about Dallas-Fort Worth with Sydney in a comparison. What does the Texas city do right that Sydney does wrong and how can we change the situation? The Texas uh, city, I'll, I'll give you a real example. I was in Texas. They don't know me from a bar of soap. Uh, we were buying some properties there for one of our trusts. I thought, I want to go and see the director of planning. I was there for two days at that, on that visit. I asked one of my staff members who we had a small office there. I said, why don't you call the city and tell them that the, uh, Dr. Shane Gahar is in town from Australia and he would like to meet the director of planning. You know, within an hour, a meeting was created for me. Okay. Right. So the Americans have a can-do attitude. They don't care where you come from. They love education. If you are a doctor, they want to meet you. If you want to do stuff in their city, they want to hear about it. And I walked in there and I said, uh, how long does it take you to do rezonings here in Texas? And he said, oh, we're not good at this, Shane. We're not good at this. And I said, uh, well, what's that mean? He said, look, uh, we can improve. I said, how long does it take? He said, eight months. Anyway, I said, uh-huh. I, I said, how long does it take you to do a permit? That's their word for a DA. Right. He said, oh, we're terrible at this as well. I said, how long does that take? He said, look, at the moment, it's taking us three months. Oh, wow. I, and I think I blurted out, I shouldn't have, but I, I blurted out, oh, good God. And he said, sorry, Shane, do you mean good God 
bad or good God good, too slow or too fast. So here's this 50-year-old highly educated man responsible for a huge operation that didn't know whether three months was too slow or too fast. Yeah. Now, that's a dream. That's an impossible dream in Sydney. Impossible. Right. That is a 12 to 24-month process for that DA, right? And you go through hell and cost and the ringer and public consultation and every neighbour complains about everything and it's all taken seriously and you never finish. And at the end of it, you feel like you've gone through an ordeal, but actually you haven't started building yet. You haven't done the real ordeal. You feel like your victory has happened before you started the war. Gathering the army seems as onerous as, as actually having the battle. So that is one of our problems, is that in our desire to get it right by creating rules, regulations, order, and I accept that, and we must have order and we must have rules, we have so over-regulated that no one now can govern without loads of regulation, which makes everything slower. So by the time you've bought the land or you've bought the old place and you want to renovate it, Branco, you're talking years before you get your renovation finished because you'll be two years in the planning and the approval process for your DA. Then you need six to 12 months for your CC. Then you need a year and a half to, to do the renovation. I mean, your wife is about to divorce you by then. But, or your husband, but, but I'm just saying. So, so we can do better than that. We can do better than that. It, any intelligent society would look at this outcome and say, this is not good enough. There's a famous American judge called Justice Sutherland who gave rise to the concept of zoning in the Western Hemisphere. Zoning is American, so our planning system is British uh, because our 1979 Act, which all the other states have copied, is essentially a replica of the 1932 Town and Country Planning Act of Mother England. But our zoning comes from, in, from the US, from a town called Euclid, Ohio. And that zoning was born in a court case that challenged zoning, which was overturned in favour of the city of Euclid against the applicant in a famous court case called, called Euclid and Ambler. So Ambler Realty had this property and, and they put a zoning ordinance on top of it and he objected because he had a constitutional right under the US Constitution to unfettered rights to property, which, by the way, we have in our Constitution. Uh, yet the zoning ordinance was agreed to by Justice Sutherland and the US Supreme Court, which is where it went to. Now, Justice Sutherland, within six months of zoning being implemented in the US, within six months, 500 US cities had zoning ordinances. And, and all of our cities have them, by the way. And it's the same zoning. It's a segregational zoning model, which separates low density from medium density, from commercial, from... And, and that works very well for cities under half a million. But to continue that story, within those six months, there were so many new rules that the people were very confused. So they rushed to Justice Sutherland and they said, great justice, who was a very wise and clever man. And they said, we are so confused by the rules which rules do we follow? Which one overrides which one? And this is what he said. And this is something we've forgotten in Australia. This is what he said. He said, salus populi suprema lex est. The welfare of the people is the supreme law. So if you forget which law, remember one law. The welfare of the people is the supreme law. Do what's good for the people. 
If going slow isn't good for the people, try and get rid of it. If affordability is a problem because it's hurting the people, get rid of it. Whatever it takes, get rid of it. And you need to give me six months. If I was in a position of power, I'll fix it for you. And it will involve pain and it'll involve people screaming, saying their rights are being eroded and blah, 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 and blah, blah, blah. But you know what? For the common good, right, we all suffer. Right? We don't all want to drive 60 in a 60 zone or 40 in a school zone, but we all do it because we know we could hurt a child. So for the common good, we all can do better. That's my opinion. Okay, well, that's actually interesting. So you mentioned Incheon earlier in, in, in South Korea. I mean, there's a, there's an interplay there with, with Badgeries Creek, uh, with, with the new airport. Um, yes, yes, definitely. As, they, as they're calling it. Um, you know, they're talking about a new rail link. Well, they are apparently building a new rail link, um, two major highways, the M9, M12. Um, yeah. In fact, from the plans and, and from, from the anecdotal um, conversations I've had with, with people, the data tends to say that it, it is, this is going to become some sort of, you know, science, um, manufacturing, you know, technology innovation hub with an airport attached to it, okay, which sounds yeah. fantastic. Okay, yeah. um, do you think that's actually going to happen? And, and if, if so, what's going to happen to the rest of Sydney? I mean, you know, there, there, there's, yeah. there'll be a tension, you know, a, a yeah. pull sort of, sort of reaction to the rest of Sydney. What do you think will happen? In, 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 in uh, first, firstly, it's a great idea to have the airport there. That's the first thing. Second thing, without federal government money, it would never have happened, right? Because leaving it to the states, none of the states have enough money to build a new airport. So the federal government pushed this through, got the land done, and then paid a pile of money, up to five billion bucks, to to get this going in terms of helping fund the highways and the train lines and every all the infrastructure around it. It has already transformed the land for kilometres on end uh, around the airport into uh, new land uses that will help the airport. It's extremely slow. The first plane will turn up will turn up in. Uh, 2026 and fly out of there pretty much in a paddock because no matter how fast I've tried to rezone some of that land there, it is extremely slow to get the outcomes that the city needs. And yes, everyone's trying really hard, but you know, there are nine authorities out there now doing their bit. Nine. It's like having nine parents and you need to go out on Saturday night. (laughs) Go and ask this mum, that mum, that dad, this dad, that uncle, that auntie, You'll never finish. You never get anything done. But but reality is, as an idea, fantastic idea. It will transform the city. It will allow us to also have a 24-7 airport, which we can't have at Kingsford Smith. True. And for a city like Sydney, Sydney will be 10 million people in living memory. In, in Within 20 years, Sydney will be 10 million people because it's the nicest city in the world to live in and everyone will want to come here. And it will continue to attract huge amounts of people. And it's got the world's most beautiful harbour. I mean, they told me the harbour, I've been to 300 cities around the world. I've been to Venice and Florence, and I've been to Vancouver, and I've been to all sorts of places. And and people told me, oh, you should see Vancouver Harbour. And I couldn't help myself, Frank, when I stood there with one of my good friends in Vancouver to use the Paul Hogan line. I said, it's nice, but harbour, that's not a (laughs) harbour. <laughs> interesting. That, that's interesting. You know that that there is there is that sort of um, thing about Sydney 
But there is also an interplay with sustainability, isn't there? I mean, there is a huge pushback for, for the city to grow. Um, you know, yeah. there is there is there is all, there is almost a, a disdain for high density living. That's right. There is there is there is a real issue with with you know with tra- obviously with transport. With an aversion to height, but, but you see, ironically, the way you actually build a better city is to create better public transport, mm-hmm. so that less people need to use a one person per vehicle motor cars. Yeah, simply, right. Now, you can't create that without density around public transport. So density actually is a friend of the good city. The good city is created with density only. If you have a low-density model like Dallas, you can only drive. And by the way, the people, they drive to everything. I was in the middle of town and I wanted to walk up to Parliament. Their Parliament is like within walking distance from my office. And it's sort of like a, a George Street and I'm in kind of Martin Place and Parliament say, is it circular kit? Sure. I mean, not very far. So I said to somebody, is that Parliament? He said, yeah. I said, I'll just walk there. He said, oh, you can't walk there. you got to take a cab. And I said, but isn't that it over there? He goes, yeah, but that's far. You, you can't go there like that walking. I said, is it unsafe? He said, it's very safe. So here they are. They drive to everything, right? They drive, <laughs> they drive for two minutes to pick up Tim Tams. You know, I don't know, which is... Which is by the way, I, I gave two lectures at Harvard and I gave the student Tim Tams and my God, they love that Tim Tams. By the way, you should know that Tim Tam was a name that Mr. Arnott came up with in 1958 when he conceived the chocolate biscuit and hadn't named it when he was in the US uh, watching the Kentucky Derby, which is like their Melbourne Cup. And the horse that won that year was called Tim Tam. And it was a dark chocolate-coloured horse. And he thought, oh, that, that reminds me of the chocolate biscuit I'm making. We'll call the biscuit Tim Tam. So yeah. that's how the name Tim Tam. Anyway, I gave it to my students at Harvard, and they were extremely thrilled. They kept eating Tim Tams like there was no tomorrow. So I helped Australian industry a little bit. I was going to say, do you think COVID has, has changed the way we look at urban planning? It may, it hasn't yet, uh, because all the fundamentals are still the same. And I don't think city living will actually diminish. A lot of people are saying there'll be an escape to the country and to the regions. That will happen temporarily. But for the vast, vast, vast majority of us, Branko, we live in the city for many, many reasons, right? It's your spouse, what they do what you do, your job, the schools of your children, your, the grandparents that babysit for you. It's more than one thing. So for us all to rush out of, and by the way, once you exit Sydney, is what I told my friend the other day who's going to Bellingen on the North Coast. I said, once you've exited Sydney and sold out, getting back in is no longer possible. Yeah. So just beware that you shouldn't do that unless you, you know you. it's a bit like those... Uh, uh, I couldn't believe it, but all these 300 people that are going to Mars on the on the thing that what's his name is doing the the, the billionaire so Musk, but but that, there's no return ticket, so you never can come back. <laughs> well, what what did Paul Keating say? If, if you're not in Sydney, you're camping out. Um, That's right, and he's right, and it's still like that. And it, you know what? In ten years' time, when we have this conversation, and we'll have it all the time. We'll, I'll see you all the time, by God's grace. But 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 you know, in ten years' time, when we have this conversation, Sydney will be at ten million. 
person city or 8 million people, and it will be even more important in a world sense than today. So let's not leave it for that long, Shane. That was <laughs> absolutely fascinating. Uh, I've got to say, uh, who thought that urban plan planning would be so, so interesting and, dare I say, almost sexy? Thank you, Dr. Shane Gahar. Thank you. Thanks, Vanka. You've been listening to Talking Architecture and Design. Until next time, goodbye. I'm Branko Melitic. Thanks for listening to Talking Architecture and Design, brought to you in association with the Architecture and Design Network. The A&D Network proudly presents the Sustainability Awards now in their 14th year. You can find more information at sustainablebuildingawards.com.au.